Welcome to Flip It or Skip It, brought to you by WorthPoint, the world's largest antiques and collectibles pricing and research database. Buy right, sell right, and profit more with WorthPoint. Now, let's meet our hosts. Hi, I'm Dana Crawford. And I'm Wayne Jordan. In today's episode of Flip It or Skip It, number 64, we're going to be talking about samplers. Samplers. Uh, give me more to go on. What kind of samplers are you talking about here? I know. When you hear that word, when I first hear that word, I think of a wooden box with mm-hmm. samples that a man, you know, a salesman would go around having samples of. Really? I think of Whitman's chocolates. Do you? <laughs> yeah, they come in. Samplers. Oh, that's true. I remember that, those little mini boxes. Right. That's right. right. But today we're talking about samplers that are more about fabric. Right. Cross-stitch. Cross-stitch, marking samplers, that that kind of thing. Have you ever done that? Done cross-stitch or made a sampler? Well, I I have fat fingers. I, I can't cross-stitch, but I know... Um, my grandmother used to, and I have a few pieces that are on a chair, on a cushion on a chair, that are beautiful pansies. But other than that, um, I've never had a personal experience as a cross-stitcher. However, I feel that I do have a good eye to spot a good sampler when I'm out and about. How do you go about spotting a good sampler? What, how, how do you know, for example, this is a, it's a hobby for many people mm-hmm. and you can buy them in kits and you can, and can do them and, and pass them on. I can't imagine anyone doing a sampler specifically to resell because it's just too much work Yeah, and you never get, you get uh, paid for your time. But as you know, a, a craft, something to hang on to, family heirloom, it would be fine, but that's not what happens. They, they, you put them in estate sales or in boxes of fabric or uh, or whatever, and and they get sold off. And they don't. They tend to not stay in families unless there's a story attached to it. Sure. And, and then people will hang on to them. So when you're out and you run across a sampler, how do you know that it's a, an antique sampler? Well, I can tell because of the fabric, and Mm -hmm. the fabric is usually brown, you know, like not dark brown, but just has a a tint of a hint, I should say, of of age to it, like me. And then it just, you can just tell when it's an older piece of fabric versus a newer piece of fabric. However, Wayne, I'm sure they can be dyed and made to look that way. Oh, no doubt. Uh, It's very common for old samplers to have brown spots on it, like in old pages of old books, because the cellulose has lignin in it, and that's where the brown spots come from. But typically with a sampler, especially one that's been framed, the browning happens more around the edges where the frame is than in the middle. And also, if you see something that's that looks like it's been crumbled up 
and the browning kind of follows the lines where it was crumbled up, chances are that that's been faked as well. It's probably a newer item where that has been faked. When I was a Boy Scout back in 19... One of the things we did as a project was we would make treasure maps. And we'd draw these these maps and make the edges ragged and that kind of thing. Put them down and put them in tea. Oh. Uh, and the tea would darken. You could also use coffee. So if, if browning is fake, that's usually how it's done, is coffee or tea. Uh, that's, that's uh, if you know what to look for, yeah. that's pretty easy to spot. Yeah, I can I could usually tell by the, the feel, if it's not in the glass, but I... I can tell by the feel if, of the fabric. One in particular I have listed in my eBay store was um, a cross-stitched type of item with applique. And the frame was falling apart, and it was glued in the frame. And so I asked the clerk, I think they were asking like $10 for it, and I said, you know what, I really don't want the frame. Could I, could I just pull this out? Because it was half hanging off of it. Right. And she said, oh, yeah, go ahead. So I pulled it off, and then she said, just give me two bucks. So I said, okay. So I gave right. her $2. I have that in my eBay store now for 75 Right. And then um, I have two others that I found at a church sale. And mm-hmm. one has a prayer, and it's a framed um, cross-stitched embroidery sampler. And it's you can tell by the f- way that the fabric is stretched into this mm-hmm. frame and you can tell it's been it's been in the family for a while and it's it's absolutely darling i have that up for 150 mm-hmm. and then i have um a second one that is actually the crisscross cross stitched all around it and then it has um a prayer another prayer about Jesus. So these were at a church sale. My guess is they were hanging in the nursery of the church. And I have that one up at 200. And oh my goodness, I had an offer on it and I didn't even know it. So this is what happens when you do auto accept, auto decline on offers. You don't know when they come Mm -hmm. in. So it looks like they offered $35 and they were declined. The good news is if I don't sell it, that was in January, and if I don't sell it, that gives me a starting point. I'll probably shoot it out to auction and start it at $35. Right. But going back to the samplers, I think you can tell by by the the style of the the stitching mm-hmm. versus, you know, modern day sewing machines and, you know, if it's by hand, you think? Um, probably. I mean, I I do a little bit of sewing mainly for upholstery, furniture, that kind of thing. But I know what I'm looking at generally when I see it. And I know that embroidery can be done by machine. They're not the same process, but they're first cousins. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so, and many people can't tell the difference by looking at them, what they are. So, yeah, I think it can be done by machine. Well, a few years ago, I had an, a consignment client bring me a very large cross stitch that was like, you know, three feet tall. And it was big letters of the ABCs, beautifully done. And it did really well on eBay. I got I um, close to $800 for it. Wow. 
And it was absolutely stunning, beautiful. But they're not so easy to find, in my opinion. When I'm out and about all these treasure hunts, it's not so often that I spot one. But when I do, I do zoom right to it. I can't help it. And I'll go, you know, ask to see what the price is. And they're usually high. So I think that people have gotten, this is one of the items that dealers have gotten wise about pricing. So do you think that they're, the ones you're seeing at shows and places, you think the market for those is primarily collectors or are they, are they promoting these things to, to flippers? I think they're definitely promoting them for collectors at the, 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 the shows that we attend with WorthPoint. Right. However, I have been in a hospice thrift store right. and seen a box of fabric mm-hmm. and and spent a few moments of digging through that box and found needlepoint and tapestry and, you know, right. different types of... Well, when I'm out and about, I, I don't often see them and if i see something on a table i might stop and look but typically that's not the kind of thing that i'm looking for my wife however does uh, textile crafts and and sewing and knitting and you know the the whole range of of skills there so if we see a box of fabric we'll almost always rummage through it to see what's in there and i've found them that way that mm. they're in boxes of fabric and i too have found tapestries and 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 such in in boxes and the nice thing about those boxes is you can what's a box lot 5 bucks maybe yeah 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 and some of them have valuable things inside i mean i've sold i mean we could do a whole show just on needlepoint and sure. cross stitch because those kits are amazing but um we'll save that for another day on the kits the samplers are i can remember going in my grandmother's house and seeing a sampler on the wall can you you know i don't remember uh-huh i don't i don't remember seeing one yeah with, with either grandmother okay but you know you you like grew up on the farm right with with no indoor plumbing and a, and a wood <laughs> stove to cook by and no TV. You, your folks probably just sat yeah. around and did cross-stitch and read books in the <laughs> evening, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, we didn't, actually. I had busy, busy family. I should say a workaholic. I grew up in workaholic families. Hmm. Family. Um, however... My since my parents had me when they were sixteen, I hmm. got to know my great grandparents, and my great grandparents had actually one great grandparent had outdoor plumbing. I can remember, but I can re- also remember the the sampler on the wall in that house. And too bad I don't have it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think uh, now that you mentioned uh, great grandmother, I visited my great grandmother last time I saw her. I think I was fourteen, and she lived in Belmont, North Carolina, and she had an outhouse in the backyard. She never had indoor plumbing. She said yep. she wouldn't have one of those smelly things in her house. <laughs> but I think now that you mention it, I think she had a sampler on the wall because she had a big old feather bed that I used to sleep in. Yeah. And, and uh, I think that it comes from 
from that generation that grew right. up with that kind of thing. It was home skills and farming skills, yep. primarily at that time an agricultural society. And although I'm sure there are plenty of women that went out and, you know, whipped a mule and plowed the fields, <laughs> that as as a rule, the the men did that and, and the women learned uh-huh. to cook and sew and and mend and that kind of thing. And making samplers was part of the process. That's yeah. how you learn to do it. In fact, the word sampler originally in the 1600s, craftspeople and artists, artisans who would do uh, samplers would make essentially a sample of the various stitches uh, just so they could have something to refer to because this was before printing became general. Printing was certainly around then and there was no photography or uh, they could do, you know, drawings of it. But the, the way that this was passed from generation to generation was to do a sample of the stitching. Ah. And so that's where it comes from. That's where the word comes from. That makes sense. Okay, Dana, this is a good spot to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Dealers, you don't have to build your own reference library. WorthPoint has done it for you. With WorthPoint's digital library, you can access over 1,000 books on antiques and collectibles in one convenient place. Find the info you need quickly. Search books by title or author or subject. Dig deep using a keyword search. Don't waste time digging through pages of Google results. Get there quicker with WorthPoint. For a seven-day, seven-look-up-free trial, go to worthpoint.com. Well, here we are. We're back. Yours truly, Wayne Jordan and Dana Crawford. And we're talking about finding and evaluating samplers. Let me ask you, you mentioned this earlier, and I've had this question stuck in my mind for the past few minutes. When you removed that sampler from the frame and it was glued to the frame, were you able to get it off so that there was still selvage around the edge of the fabric? Or was the fabric kind of raw along the sides with loose fibers? Yep, it was It was raw. Uh-huh. around the sides with loose fibers. So personally, I think that the fabric was newer. The stitching and all of that was older in the middle. And that the it had like fabric around the edges, which I think was a newer, like it was added later. Like maybe they were trying to preserve, you know, the sampler in the middle. And perhaps make it big enough to frame. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it was the first time I ever seen that. So when you find something at a show and you think that it's something that you might want to buy, but it's a little dirty and wrinkled, how do you clean it up? Wow, that's a good question. I I really don't think I would. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'd really, I, I wouldn't advise you to even attempt it because you can have all that in your description. Right. The, I wouldn't try to remove a stain. I wouldn't put a, you know, a tied stain stick. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't touch it because that, that age is beauty on things like that. I know uh, my daughter has one that my mother made maybe 40 years ago. Right. And it's, it's definitely yellowing on the wall. 
of just age. Right. But I walked by it the other day because I'm at her house watching her dogs while they're on vacation. And I went and I thought, wow, that's really gotten old looking. You know, it's really gotten old looking. But then I stood back and I thought, but it's beautiful, you know, even though it looks kind of dirty. Sure. <laughs> you know, it's it's all the years of ev- all of us that get old. We we just get more beautiful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well said, Dana. <laughs> I have to save this episode. Um, well, you know, the browning, brown spots, that sort of thing, you cannot get out at okay. all. Because... Okay. Those are lignin stains. Lignin is part of the, it, it's in the fibers of cotton and flax and you know, vegetable fibers in general. Most of us who are parents have had the occasion uh, that a child has wet the bed mm-hmm. on the mattress or the cotton sheets or whatever. When it When the mattress dries, it's got that little brown circle or, or mark on it. Well, that's the lignin stain. The, the lignin has migrated from the wet spot out to the edge and gathered there, and that's what makes it dark. And so if you've got a sampler with brown spots, you can forget about getting it out. Now, if you've got something that is, you know, stinky or dirty or something like that, uh, I've heard that the best way to try to clean them is in woolite because it's a different kind of of cleaner and that's just to, to follow the directions on the woolite and use cold water and put it in and just kind of rub it a little bit and let the woolite do its work. Uh, but then you have to rinse it two or three times and all that's going to do is get the dirt out of the settled into the fabric. And I never I looked this up and I couldn't find an answer to it about ironing them because I've seen people I've seen them in boxes where folks have folded and that's just not a good idea because they they don't flatten out well usually if you have folds in fabric the thing you do is iron them well if they're sensitive to water and they're sensitive to heat I wouldn't imagine you could iron them I certainly wouldn't try to iron one but I'm sure there's probably instructions somewhere online or YouTube that might give some guidance in that. But I think if I were to wash one in woolite, I'd just spread it out flat and let it air dry. Well, that's a really good tip because I honestly would not have thought about the woolite. Woolite is a really a, a good tip. One other thing about woolite is it's important that if you, if you do get some, you get something that's scent-free. Mm-hmm. odor-free and doesn't have any color in it. The colors in old samplers, uh, most of the time, the, f- the basic fabric is flax or cotton, but the thread used for the stitching isn't. It can be silk or it could be a, a cotton, but the thing that's important to note about the, about the thread is that dyes back then were just not very good. For example, green. Uh, I did an article once about a green that was very popular in the Victorian era, and it was made with arsenic, and people were dying (laughs) from handling fabric that had this arsenic in it. But it made a beautiful green, but greens were very difficult to get. So if you see 
uh, green thread in a, in a sampler, it's very possible that over the years with changes in humidity and, and, and so on and changes in light that it might start to bleed a little bit. So the images like a tree or a house or something, if you're stitching those in, could look a little fuzzy around the edges, and that's the dye bleeding out. Dyes in general, I mean, I've, in my restoration shop, I used dye stains from time to time, but in general, they're very sensitive to light, uh, and they don't hold up. Another important thing that, to mention, too, is that if it's got a date on it, and someone's name that makes it more valuable but you have to look real carefully at dates because numbers can be changed you could change a six to an eight and or, or a nine to a zero uh, so you need to look at dates carefully another thing is is repairing them it's not unusual to find something with a hole in it well sometimes when things get a hole in it it's it's cut in the and the fabric itself is cut but many times it's just poked it's got a little hole in it from a sharp object poking a hole and if you take a fine needle something like a restorers use dental tools you oh. can pull those fibers back into place sure and fix that hole so uh, I, I wouldn't be uh, scared off by Unless it was really nasty. <laughs> if it yeah. was nasty, yeah. I'd just pass it pass by. But some of the with the prices that these things are achieving, mm -hmm. if it's just got minor browning or a little hole here or there and if yeah. it's generally in good condition and the price is right, I'd pick it up. But I doubt that you're gonna find something flippable unless you're going through a box and find it by accident. <laughs> Yeah, good point. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I look online at places that sell these, and, you know, of course, kits are fairly inexpensive, under $20. Yeah. But I see finished ones being sold for $20, and I guarantee you that those are mass-produced. Of course. And, and they're fake, because it's just too much time uh, put into that. Yeah. Uh, to, to sell it at that price. Right, yeah. I mean, back in the day, you know, it used to be fun for me to do craft fairs before eBay, before, you know, right. flea markets. I would do the craft fairs with um, some sewing projects that I did. And you would feel insulted when people wouldn't want to pay. Sure. <laughs> You'd be like sitting sure. there going, do you know how long it took me to make that? Yeah, they have no you know? idea. No idea. So stitching one of those, I mean, we're talking months and months. Sure, sure. <laughs> Very patient. I mean, the part of the whole process is being able to count the rows, the, the warp and weft of the weave. Yeah. And get your stitches perfectly even. Yeah. It's got to be, the fabric's got to be fairly tight. It's got to be pulled in the right direction. Yep, sometimes when they're stretched too in the frame, they get kind of lopsided, where the, the letters will be lopsided, like if they've been pulled into a frame. Sure. And that can actually put some wear and tear on the fabric, because it's usually a linen. It's a linen-type fabric. Okay, Dana. Well, I'm looking at my uh, 
American sampler wall clock there. It's telling me that uh, the hands just don't seem to be moving. But I can tell that it's time to end this episode. So I'd like to thank everyone for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next week. Okay, it's a stitch in time to say bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye. You've been listening to Flip It or Skip It, brought to you by WorthPoint.com, the world's largest antiques and collectibles pricing and research database. Buy right, sell right, and profit more with WorthPoint. Point.